Well, the first music that I listened to was like the um, pop music that was playing on the radio at that time, which was the late 90s, early 2000s. So really just anything that got on the airwaves. As I got older, I definitely went through a phase of classic rock. Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd were some of my favorites. Also, Stevie Wonder, of course. And then when I was in high school, I started listening a lot to jazz and classical music. And it's around that same time that I started getting very serious about studying music. And so um, listening to Joe Henderson, John Coltrane, and also, you know, Beethoven, Bach, you know, Schoenberg, Stockhausen. So a lot of different classical music of a lot of different eras. Hey, it's Gabrielle. The voice you've been hearing belongs to Joey Van Leeuwen. And I'll give him a proper introduction in a bit. When I went to college, I I started getting involved in uh, the contemporary jazz fusion scene. And then, um, yeah, I moved to New Orleans when I was 20. And that... Uh, led to me becoming a part of the uh, traditional jazz scene. Not that I was like a prominent player, but that I listened to a lot of Louis Armstrong, Baby Dodds, as well as the New Orleans contemporary jazz music, which was centered around the Marsalis family, uh, Nicholas Payton, and Terrence Blanchard, and and, uh, a lot of other musicians who were pushing the music of New Orleans forward with respect still to the uh, the unique tradition of jazz, second line music, you know, brass bands and things like that. So, uh, yeah. And then at the same time, I also got very involved in the study of Carnatic music, which is classical music from Southern India. That actually started before I went to college when I was a big uh, fan, of course, uh, Ravi Shankar and Ala Raka. Then I encountered Carnatic music when I was in college and made two trips to India and uh, studied this music directly with a master in the city of Chennai. Wow. Uh, yeah, so now I'm, uh, I'm a master's student at NEC. I just finished my first year. That's New England Conservatory of Music, and just a lot of a lot of different stuff. Uh, I'm really like a holistic kind of uh, person when it comes to music. You know, I try to take in all of it. I can see how that would help you have a variety of things to draw from as a composer. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, and also the, the people that I always listened to were the ones who wanted to create, you know, total music, you know, just music that was not defined by any genre, 
This is Musicians Can Thrive, a podcast community for anyone seeking to make money in the music industry. Musicians, audio engineers, managers, producers, booking agents, everyone across all niches. Welcome. My name is Gabrielle. I'm a singer-songwriter. These stories are for you. I hope they'll help you find new ways to thrive as a musician. Joey Van Leeuwen just might be the modern definition of a Renaissance man. A talented composer who plays several instruments, Joey also teaches percussion. And he helps musicians organize to create better working conditions. Can you imagine what it would feel like to play a gig at a prime location in the center of your city without worrying about paying for parking at all? It might seem like a small detail, but the hourly impact that has on your gig revenue adds up. So keep your ears ready for when Joey shares what he worked on on helping New Orleans musicians organize for change. I took a look at your website and your bio mentioned that you had a, an affinity early on for banging around on pots and pans. So playing music, is that something that just has always been with you? Or how did you discover that you wanted to be a musician? Um, yeah, well, so definitely I was playing music from an early age. Yeah, banging on pots and pans, that happened from time to time. And also I was playing the piano from when I was about four or five. That was kind of like my first instrument. And I took piano lessons for maybe a few months. Really, I got into the drums when I was nine. I took percussion uh, at my school in fourth grade, mostly because, you know, my sister convinced me to do it. I, I actually, my first choice of instrument was that I wanted to play the clarinet you know, but she convinced me to take on the drums. So yeah. And that's how I really started to get involved in music was through school. And then I got a drum set when I was 11 years old, just was playing it all the time. At the same time, I was getting into a lot of trouble at school, um, running into problems with authority and um, ended up running into institutions and some of these institutions used uh, music therapy, you know, to help young people deal with these kinds of problems. You know, we all have uh, different things going on in our lives. Um, but one of the most profound experiences that I had was interacting with a music therapist who used uh, the drum set to cope with his uh, Tourette's syndrome. Mm. And he led a, a lot of us kids in a uh, drum circle where we just used percussion to express ourselves. And that was definitely like a crystallizing moment for me. I, I saw that. I, I think about that all the time when I think about my purpose for making music, you know, because I want to use music for healing also. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is a powerful tool to heal people and bring them together. When it comes to finding the creative people that I interview for Musicians Can Thrive, 
most of the time I either find someone at a show I went to, or a mutual friend introduces me to them. Joey Van Leeuwen's uncle and I participated in the same podcasting fellowship, and we bonded over our shared love of music. As we got to know each other more, he introduced me to Joey. The point of this story is to help you understand the context of what's coming up in the next few minutes. I've never met Joey in person. The only things I knew about him were that he and his uncle shared Jewish-Dutch heritage, and then I saw a single photo of Joey just before my interview with him. The photo was in black and white, so I couldn't say with certainty what the exact shade of his skin was. Because I knew his uncle was white, I had expected Joey to also be white. But what threw me off was the tint that came with the black and white photo, and he had really curly hair. So before I interviewed him, I should have gone and looked for another photo of him online. And questioned my assumption that, okay, maybe he wasn't white like his uncle. That's my mistake. And I fully own that. But here's what I'd like you to keep in mind with this story. We all go through the world making assumptions about people that we cross paths with. Because I knew that some of Joey's family is Jewish and Dutch, I wanted to learn more about what his mother's side of the family was like. I wanted to create space for Joey to share what it felt like to go through his challenges with authority and his experiences of police brutality as a child. So, my coming question is awkward. I'm still learning how to ask someone to share their stories of experiencing injustice and racism. I don't pretend to have all the answers or know exactly what I'm doing. And with that, I hope you'll listen to Joey's story with an open mind. Just so that I can be accurate in what I'm saying, do you identify as an African-American or are there other ethnicities that your heritage has? I am uh, not African-American. My mother is Sicilian-American and uh, my father is of uh, Dutch Jewish heritage. All kinds of interesting history there. Yeah, definitely. Um, my Both of my parents' families came to the United States um, around the beginning of the 20th century. My, my father's family, that's my, uh, my grandfather's generation, were refugees from the Holocaust. And my mother's family came to the United States a little bit earlier. So the reason why I ask is you mentioned that you had some problems with authority and the institutions of public school. And if you'd be willing to speak about your experience with that and how music helped you deal with the challenges of that i'm wanting to create space for people who do not have white skin to describe what it feels like to be in that situation yeah well i i don't 
think that I can um, speak for anyone uh, other than other than myself in regards to what the experience is like of, of being black in America. But I would say that the problems of authority and authoritarianism in the United States extend in a lot of ways beyond the black community and into the, um, the realm of anyone who is a challenge to the existing power structures. I was very defiant as a child. Um, I also dealt with uh, parental abuse and that caused me to be in conflict uh, with this system, with the school system. And uh, this system came down really hard on me. I was expelled from school in the fourth grade. It was quite an experience. I also um, experienced police brutality at a very young age. Um, when I was 11 years old, I was um, I was arrested as the result of a uh, domestic dispute with my family. And the uh, sheriffs who arrested me beat me up threatened me basically, you know, telling me that they were going to, um, throw me to the dogs, leave me lying in a ditch somewhere. It was extremely painful physically, emotionally. It was terrifying. That's horrible. Um, how old were you? I was 11. Um, and just to show that the way that the, the system responds to this, you know, um, they took me to the hospital afterwards and made a mental health arrest. And I tried to speak to the security at the hospital at, about that. It was Rochester Police Department basically telling them that these cops had beat me up. And the officer at the hospital just laughed. Um, his response was that if they had really, uh, if they had really hit me, then they probably would have killed me. Uh, that was like seemingly some kind of like joke, you know, so that also, you know, influenced, um, the way that I, I look at music, you know, because, um, it imbued me with a, a strong sense of, I think that it was meant to, you know, like break my defiance of the order, but really it, it strengthened it because it led to me understanding the brutality of our system and how behind our democracy there is the use of brutal organized force, people who don't cooperate. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the worst things about the United States. So how did you then find your way into a music therapy context? Was that mandated by the public school system or something else? Um, no, it was, it was, uh, through an organization called Hillside, which is like, provides like basically youth intervention services 
you know, trying to stop um, young kids who uh, have problems with the system from becoming, you know, statistics. So I was there on a weekend respite. So as you became more involved in the world of music and you became exposed to many of the blues and jazz and classical music greats across New Orleans and New York, India, Europe. How did that develop your perspective on what you wanted to bring to the world through music? That's a, yeah, that's a great question because some of my biggest influences were people who use their music to try and activate a deeper consciousness of uh, humanity. You know, John Coltrane in seeking spiritual enlightenment and oneness and togetherness, Max Roach, who explicitly used um, music and jazz to call for the liberation of Black people from racism. And, you know, classical composers also, like uh, Arnold Schoenberg, whose uh, piece, A Survivor from Warsaw, was a testament to the, um, the suffering of the Warsaw ghetto under Nazi Germany and the way that the Jewish people used our faith to defy their attempts to destroy us. It's a very, very powerful piece. This is the Schoenberg piece, a survivor from Warsaw. I cannot remember everything. I must have been unconscious most of the time. That definitely enhanced my perspectives on on what I wanted to do, you know, because, you know, music is something that affects all of us. You know, it's a language. And, you know, in a language, you can communicate anything. Mm -hmm. You know, for positive or for negative use. And... So for me, that developed the need to use music for positive goals and also the need to understand and be conscious of the language that I was speaking, you know, which is what led me to want to further my studies in music, getting a um, bachelor's degree in jazz studies and also um, going for a master's degree in music. So that's that's what I try to do is... Um, one, you know, capture the emotion of the world that I see, you know, try to capture my own emotion and communicate it to people and also try to show people the way, you know, it's a delicate balance because when you know that you have something to say, you have an obligation to say it, but you also have an obligation to deepen your understanding and learn what it is that you're doing 
you know, and, and learn more about what's going on and, and what needs to be said. Mm. So a lot of influences of music come from outside of music also. Yes, I, I can resonate with that. I, there's quite a few books that have (laughs) influenced my music just as much as the music I listen to. I really love the way that you described music as a language that can help you say what needs to be heard. And the, the power of music to bridge differences is something that is one of the things that I cherish most about music. And my hope is that by sharing the stories of all kinds of musicians across genre, across different states and countries and cities, different ethnicities, that we can bring people together through our music and use music to speak to the things that are not okay in this world and that need to be changed. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, not only do we want to speak to power and talk about the great injustices of the world, but we also want to highlight the aspects of human life and of the our existence in general that are truly beautiful. Two of my idols that really did that, John Coltrane and also Victor Jara, who was a Chilean uh, folk singer um, in the uh, 1960s and 1970s, who was a big part of the uh, social movement of the Nueva Canción and the uh, and support for uh, Salvador Allende. Um, you know, he spoke about and and Victor Jara is, is a story that I could really get into very deeply. But I um, just want to say that he was someone who spoke not only about the tremendous social issues, but also highlighted the beauty of everyday life. You know, singing songs about his mother and father meeting for the five minute break of his factory work and how the beauty of love and togetherness like was more powerful than the oppression of the system that they were dominated by. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do need both. Most definitely. So as you have gone on your journey through studying music at universities and studying under specific musicians in New Orleans and India and other places. What has your experience been with making money as a musician? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, when I first got to New Orleans, that's when my music career really started to begin. I worked a couple of odd jobs. I was a 
I delivered phone books in New Orleans. I was a delivery driver um, for a Chinese restaurant. I also uh, worked for Grassroots Campaigns, which was a uh, is a fundraising and canvassing organization. And I also worked for a record store in the French Quarter. All of those within about a six-month period. It was really, really difficult to uh, hold down a job, mostly because um, my car broke down while I was working at the restaurant. So I lost my job. And then I was commuting about 10 miles, 10 to 15 miles on a bicycle each way every day and my job at grassroots campaigns and then doing canvassing in the street, which was just physically completely exhausting. The same problem really happened with the record store because I was having to like bike 30 miles a day. It was really hard to maintain my job. Uh, so I moved downtown, but then the same day or the same week that I moved downtown, from outside of New Orleans. Uh, I lost my job at the record store. I decided instead of looking for a new job right away that I was going to go into the French Quarter uh, with my drum set and start playing music. So you probably know this, but for, for people who don't, it's called busking. And so that was my job for about I would say between two to four months, I played exclusively in the street, mostly on Royal Street in New Orleans. I started getting gigs, playing music in clubs and just doing anything, you know, really any kind of music that came my way, I was playing. But the nice thing is that New Orleans has a big jazz scene. And because I was experienced with playing that music, I was able to get gigs doing that. And also, I was a big part of the avant-garde scene in New Orleans. For the next um, four and a half years, out of the five years that I was living in New Orleans, I played music exclusively as a living, live performance, really, only. I did some recordings, but I wasn't really paid very much for them. And they were not very often. So the music scene in New Orleans is very much based on live music. It's very much based on the tourism industry. And it's like definitely a quantity-based scene for, for a lot of people. Um, for me, I played... Well, I started keeping track of my uh, gigs in 2017. I think that year I um, played maybe 150 concerts. I mean, not, I wouldn't call them concerts. They were gigs. Most of them were in bars in downtown New Orleans on Frenchman Street, a couple of other places in the French Quarter. In 2018, I played over 200 gigs, and that was including that I spent about two months total um, traveling, during which time I, I really wasn't doing a lot of performing. Um, so in 10 months playing about 215 gigs. That's um, a lot. It is a lot. And it was um, part of what, you know, was that experience that also led to uh, me wanting to become involved in organizing. How did that come uh, actually, about? Actually, 
Yeah. So I, um, in 2016, at the same time as I was beginning to finish my education at the University of New Orleans, I, I had uh, done two years in a college in Virginia also and withdrew. So I, tra- I technically transferred after taking a year and a half off from school. Anyway, so I was starting up at the University of New Orleans and also I was uh, involved in a struggle against one of the club owners of a club called Bamboulas. The manager uh, was accused of sexual harassment by some women musicians that I had worked with uh, extensively. And also there was a huge scandal over uh, basically extortion for bribes. He was demanding people pay his, uh, what he called a green room fee. But basically people who refused to pay that fee, their gigs were canceled. So that resulted in uh, a lawsuit and also myself and other people directly protested this in front of the club. And so doing that, I, I got noticed by the American Federation of Musicians local in New Orleans, which was trying to begin organizing musicians on a much larger level. So really just to like give like the briefest background possible, you know, union organization before the before the 1960s or so, you know, was very much involved in mass action and mass politics, uniting as many people across as many fields as possible in order to fight for better conditions for the working class. As time went on, the situation changed. Unions became more about basically more of uh, the fraternal organizations of people who were the kind of elite in the um, music community who wanted an organization to help represent them with, you know, contracts and things like that. Um, That's what the AFM was really doing mostly in in New Orleans. And the reason why was because um, of changes to the law with musicians that because of a federal court case that I believe uh, originated in the South, I, I believe it was actually in Puerto Rico, musicians were defined as being independent contractors rather than employees. This uh, court case decided that the employer of a musician is not the music venue, but rather the band leader, which meant that musicians' unions were not entitled to collectively bargain with music venues. They were only allowed to collectively bargain with band leaders, which, I mean, anyone who's a professional musician understands how ridiculous that is because the band leaders don't decide how much we get paid. You Mm. know, band leaders try to negotiate the highest price possible. That's awfully convenient for the music venues. Right. So, you know, there was a resurgence of this strategy of trying to organize all musicians behind the union. And, you know, rather than just negotiate contracts and provide pensions and things to make the union an active political role, 
in fighting for better working conditions for musicians. Um, that included not just pay increases, but also designated parking spaces in New Orleans for musicians. You know, one of the things that happens is that it costs $3 an hour to park in downtown New Orleans on the meter. Mm-hmm. Um, and musicians can, you know, go to a gig and spend uh, six hours playing music and walk away with maybe $75. You know, sometimes it's more, but a lot of times it's that. And so if you spend, you know, $21 for seven hours of parking and you make $75, you're paying almost a third of the money that you earn towards parking. That's not Um, okay. Right. And so um, that was an issue. There were other issues. Obviously, the more active suppression of musicians was an issue. Sexual harassment was an issue. Racism and, you know, racial preferences, you know, racial preferences of club owners was a big deal. There's definitely still, even though New Orleans, I feel like, is one of the most integrated cities in the United States, there was a lot of segregation in the music scene still. We've made it about halfway through the show, and we're going to have a quick pause. Ads are irritating distractions, so they'll never be a part of the Musicians Can Thrive podcast. Thank you for listening. To make sure you get new episodes as soon as I release them, subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I'm so glad I get the honor of sharing these musicians' stories, and it would mean a lot if you would be willing to help me share them. Spotify has this awesome feature where you can share podcast episodes directly to Instagram stories. So if you're willing, tell your followers about your favorite episode. Last thing. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a quick review helps other musicians learn about Musicians Can't Thrive. I appreciate your support. Back to the show. Do you find that different genres are more easily accepted or does it apply across all music in New Orleans? You know, definitely there's a, if you're talking about, you know, racial boundaries, you know, certain kinds of music are geared towards certain demographics of people. I would say that the black community had the strongest, you know, control and sense of identity in the funk scene, playing funk and, you know, specifically New Orleans funk and traditional jazz as well. The traditional jazz scene was actually very integrated, but there was still a lot of sectarianism, you know, within that scene. There's, there's, you know, big, you know, cultural debates over, you know, nativism and who owns that music. Mm. Um, That's, we could spend you know, hours <laughs> talking about that, but I, I just want to continue with the, with the the union. Basically, yeah, the national director of the national director of organizing for the AFM came down and worked with uh, me and some other musicians that formed a committee pretty frequently. But after the 2016 elections, the AFM basically completely abandoned that strategy. They really left us without a net. And they, they actually fired him and completely changed their strategy towards unionizing orchestras, which, you know, not only is that, does that mean that, you know, leaving behind freelance musicians, 
but also specifically like targeting a community that is very white. Yes. Yeah. So, so that was uh, my experience with that. Well, it sounds like a mix of frustrating experiences, but also empowering experiences where you were able to identify ways that you could organize people to at least attempt to make the changes you were seeking in the New Orleans music scene. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, it's important for people to remember that we can't just define ourselves by our struggle. You know, I mean, the New Orleans music community, it's super supportive. People, you know, look out for each other. You know, right now during, you know, the coronavirus, there were musicians that were raising funds. There were also lots of organizations, cultural organizations that were dedicated towards helping musicians because, you know, basically the entire music community was put out of work by the quarantine. Mm-hmm. So the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation was giving out grants. They're the ones that uh, run Jazz Fest. So yeah, the community, the sense of community is, is very empowering, you know, and that's what music is about, right? Absolutely. For each other. I am beginning to become more and more passionate about you know in the the whole landscape of society across the United States but then also across the world you know how do we organize people to make changes and inevitably there are different specializations that we each have in different niches of society and music is one of those so for musicians to find a way to organize in specific ways that can help musicians of all colors and ethnicities and religious backgrounds. I think that's one way that we can take the beautiful parts of the community that music can build and use it in a meaningful way. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, that was one of the most powerful things at the, um, the protest yesterday in downtown Rochester. I wasn't the only person that was there actually playing percussion, you know, so I brought my uh, tambourine and my cowbell and there was uh, another person there marching with a big drum um, that they were banging on and there was actually an entire performance by some African uh, traditional music group. I wish that I could identify it with more specificity, but I wasn't um, familiar with the specific style of music that, that they were playing. You know, so singing and dancing was part of this event. Also, just marching and chanting with drums you know, it, it made it, uh, it made the experience like extremely powerful, you know, and, you know, at the same time that we were, you know, chanting, I was playing my cowbell. I gave my tambourine to a guy who was standing next to me and we were all playing and people were chanting and dancing. Mm, that's beautiful.
Yeah, even when the Rochester Police Department uh, started shooting us with uh, pepper bullets, we we kept singing. Since I didn't have the recording going when you were telling me about this earlier, would you be willing to describe what pepper bullets are for the listeners? Um, yeah, so pepper bullets are a kind of crowd control round that are fired from a air rifle, like a paintball gun. And basically, they're hollow plastic balls that are full of irritant chemicals. Basically, they're, they're full of tear gas. And they are painful. Getting hit with one is painful. And then also, it disperses about a 15-foot perimeter of irritant gas that chokes people, makes your eyes burn. When... We marched to the uh, Rochester Police Department station downtown. Police trying to clear us out. They fired indiscriminately into the crowd with these uh, pepper bullets. There was, uh, it was a really chaotic scene. I was shot in the knee and the shoulder um, with these pepper bullets. And uh, a lot of people, on, you know, just on the front lines of the protest were shot, even though we were being completely nonviolent. Um, just to, you know, talk about this, you know, what happened in Rochester was just completely insane yesterday. You know, people were uh, taking out their um, anger on police property to Police cars were um, completely destroyed and set on fire um, by the crowd. There were people, obviously, the RPD fired literally thousands of these pepper bullets into the crowd and also also tear gas canisters, Um, but especially the pepper bullets. They were shooting people from point-blank range. I mean, I was shot from a range of maybe 10 feet you know, twice. And, uh, that's so horrible. And then on the other side, um, there were people on the other side of the, of the, uh, plaza, uh, shooting fireworks at the police building. So it was really just insane. But what was just crazy was that the police were they decided rather than to, you know, shoot the people who were, you know, there were people that were standing on top of the police cars and, you know, stomping them. And instead of shooting them, the police shot at us. The people that were, you know, chanting, we were chanting hands up, don't shoot. And, and they shot us with our hands up, you know, from point blank range. How did that make you feel? Well, it it made me feel, obviously, it made me feel extremely angry. I mean, it was, it hurt physically. Um, It was emotionally enraging and also, you know, terrifying. Um, You know, seeing also the police surrounding us from all sides and and getting ready to, um, 
you know, storm, basically storm the plaza, which, which they did later after I left um, with my sister who has asthma. Mm. And uh, when the tear gas uh, started coming out, we left. I had an obligation to um, stay with my sister. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure that there's anything that I can add to this, but I do want to express my appreciation for you being willing to share your experiences with me so that I can share them with all the listeners of this podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really glad that um, I got the opportunity to talk about uh, this stuff for a minute. Yeah. It's It's definitely um, not the interview that I was expecting uh, last week. (laughs) Well, it, it wasn't quite what I was planning, but I, I feel that it's important to share this side of life as a musician as well. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And with that said, if there's anything that we haven't talked about that you would like a musician to know as they try and navigate building their own career, I'd love for you to share that now. Yeah, the thing that I have to say to musicians that are starting out and trying to build their career is don't give in to the idea of changing who you are to be who you think that people want you to be. You know, if you're, if your heart is true and if you, you know, focus on what you believe, you know, whether that is, you know, a musical ideal or something, you know, completely outside of music, then ultimately you will find a way. I love that. So where can listeners find you and your music online? Yeah, you can find me on my website. That is joeyvanlewin.com. And also, I am a frequent poster on Instagram. My Instagram handle is jvldrums. There you can also find a link to my um, latest album, which I recorded remotely during the quarantine with jazz students at NEC. I'm also on Facebook. I have a a public Facebook page that people can find and SoundCloud. I'm really, really everywhere. If you Google my name, you can just find that stuff. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to add links in the show notes so it's nice and easy for listeners to find. Oh, yeah, yeah. You should definitely include the spelling of my name because people never, (laughs) never guess it right. If they read it, then they do not know how to pronounce it. And if they hear it, then they don't know how to spell it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I guess I got the easy 
route on that then because your uncle Danny introduced me to me. So I got a little practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being willing to talk with me, Joey. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really glad that we got to do this, Gabrielle. Please check the show notes for links to find Joey Van Leeuwen's music, social media, and all that fun stuff. One last thing before you go today. There are techniques, strategies, and routines that work best for different people. With that in mind, I encourage you to consider this. Joey makes an important point when he highlights the power that comes with using music as a language to connect with people. And the equal importance of doing your best to fully understand how you can use this language to communicate with others and teach them about the experiences of people outside of what feels familiar. Police brutality in America and the systemic racism that plagues our country is a problem I feel strongly about doing everything in my power to address. The time for change is long overdue. The trouble with change is it's hard. The status quo is habitual, and when you try to shift that, there's a kind of resistance that we need to fight through in order to make changes that last. And this is where the power of music comes in. If you can write a song that's catchy and gets stuck in someone's head, you can hold their attention a million times better than the most practiced politician. If you want to rally people to organize, to take meaningful action, Consider how you could use music to support that. After all, if you get a song stuck in someone's head, you have their attention. Your words become ingrained in their mind. And your words, your life experiences, your stories, they can win someone's heart. I don't remember who said it, but if you need people to organize, winning their hearts and minds is the first step. Thank you for listening. And if you have any feedback that you'd like to share with me about this episode, please reach out to me on Instagram. You can find me under Musicians Can Thrive. All lowercase, all one word. And with that, we've reached the end of the final episode of season two. We'll be back in about a month with season three.